So this morning, uh, find your way to Genesis chapter 12. I'm not necessarily going to read what's in the bulletin, but it is part of what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, Let me pray for us first, and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the gift of a book that reads us, that understands us, that when we, when we read uh, stories like the stories of Abram and Sarai, we, we see ourselves, we understand <laughs> that you understand us. Um, but we're also thankful, Father, that this is a book uh, that you've written because it reads you. It tells us uh, things that we wouldn't know about you unless you told us. Um, and the things that you reveal about yourself are so good and so rich and so much better than the things that you reveal about us in these pages. So I pray that that would be what you do in the hearts of your people this morning, that um, that we would see ourselves reflected here, um, but that we would see you even more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So faith is under attack. Faith is under attack. When I say that, I wonder if you're like me, that when I hear that, that statement, faith is under attack, I... I start to say, yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, look at what's going on. Have you, have you watched the news lately? Have you heard the discussions? Have you seen the decisions that people are making? And in that sense, yes, faith is under attack. But that's not, what, that's not the kind of faith under attack that I want us to think about this morning. Um, when I'm saying faith is under attack, I'm talking about you. Your personal faith in, trust in, confidence in, rest in, reliance upon all the promises of God in Jesus for you, that's under attack. It's absolutely under attack. In this room this morning, no matter what's going on out there on the news, your faith is under attack. Your everyday, ordinary faith. Jesus said this to his disciples uh, in Luke 22. Um, I know we're, I know we're in Genesis, but I, I just couldn't help but think of Luke 22 this morning, uh, this week, as I was studying Genesis. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples, and particularly to Peter. Luke 22, verse 31. Jesus is looking at Peter, whose other name was Simon, and he says, this is the night before Jesus was crucified, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. 
But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So Jesus was telling his disciples, in fact, when he says Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, we don't see it in the English, but that's plural. He's talking to all of his disciples in the room. He's looking at Simon, but he's saying Satan has demanded to have all of you tonight so that he can sift you, all of you, like wheat. And then he looks at Peter and says, but I have prayed for you, singular, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, which means in some sense his faith is going to fail, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers, Jesus says to Peter. Uh, likely because theirs will too, and they'll need strength. So, their faith, the disciples of Jesus' faith in Christ, in Jesus, is under attack. Satan wants to sift them like wheat, and uh, if I've never necessarily seen this, but as I've studied it, uh, sifting wheat was a process they used. They took a, a, a big kind of screen, shallow, bullish screen, It poured the wheat in there and shook it violently until the wheat, the chaff, was separated from the kernel of the wheat. And this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us this morning that Satan wants to do with us. He wants to tear our faith in Jesus from us. And that's that's what he plans to do. That's what he's up to. So I want to ask you, what are the ways in which uh, your faith has been threatened to be torn away, your faith in Jesus, your trust in Jesus, your reliance on him? What are the things that are going on in your your life right now that feel like you're being sifted and shaken? What is threatening your faith and confidence and rest in the heart of God. Well, Abram's story um, is an illustration, a picture of that kind of sifting. God gives Abram all kinds of reasons to trust him, and Abram does. He has faith, but Abram's faith gets shaken. And uh, in these Chapters between 12 and 17, as we kind of, I know we're going backwards a little bit, but we're looking a little broader at these chapters to see that there's three kinds of sifting that are, that's going on in Abram's life. Three things that threaten to shake his confidence in all the promises of God and God's heart for him. And those three are fear, uh, that threatens to shake his faith in, in God's promises, uh, the threat of prosperity or the good life, and then the threat or um, the shaking of God's own slowness to respond to Abram. Um, 
And notice that Jesus told Peter, your faith will fail unless God helps you. And so I'm going to pray that God will help you. Your faith uh, will not fail completely or fully or finally uh, because I'm going to ask God to help you. And that truth that Jesus spoke to Peter is illustrated here in the life of Abram. Abram's faith is shaken and it is shaky. It's up and down. We're going to see, well, at one moment he's not trusting God and Sarai pays for it. In the next moment, he is trusting God. In the next moment, he and Sarai are not trusting God. In the next moment, he is trusting God. And Moses, who put these accounts together, put them together on purpose. He selected these various uh, parts of the story to show us that our faith is shaky, but God's faithfulness is sure. Uh, There's a song uh, by a band that I I used to love called Cayman's Call, and it's called Shifting Sand. And the chorus goes like this. "My My faith is like shifting sand changed by every wave. My faith is like shifting sand, so I'll stand on grace. That's the message that I would like for us to to consider and, and think about this morning. Your faith, Abram's faith, my faith, shifts like sand being washed by the waves. And so what we need to do is not rely upon or stand upon our own faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of God. And that's what Moses shows us in these stories. That's the point he's trying to make. (coughs) God's people cannot depend on the intensity and consistency of their own faith. They have to depend on the the intensity and the consistency of God's faithfulness, okay? So, here's what we're going to do. Super fast, because we're running short on time. We're going to look at a couple of these stories and think about this together. So uh, look at Genesis chapter 12 with me. Remember, in the very first part of Genesis 12, God has called Abram out of a life of paganism. Abram wasn't following Yahweh. God initiated, so this is God's grace, God's faithfulness, showing up first in the life of Abram, calling him into relationship with himself, telling him, I want you to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I'll make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So there's this promise from God. I, God, the Lord uh, who created all things, I will be in relationship with you. I'll bless you. That's, we think blessing means, oh, I'm too blessed to be stressed. I had a good day. It's not what biblical blessing is all about. It's, it's this amazing, intimate relationship with the God of the universe where he grants us and showers us with his favor and his love and his power. 
So he's promised this to Abram. He's promised Abram a people. He's promised him uh, protection. Those who uh, bless you, I will bless. Those who dishonor you, I will curse. And he's promised him a plan, a purpose, that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. So it all, Abram's story with God starts with God. All right? And then what happens? You go down to verse 10, and sure enough, there's a famine in the land that God had promised Abram, the land to which God had sent Abram. Um, I, I, don't wanna, I won't read through every detail, but um, I'm going to invite you on each of these little vignettes. This afternoon, go back and read them and, and think about these things we're talking about this morning. Um, there's a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt. And as he's going down to Egypt, Egypt he starts to think, hmm, my wife Sarah is beautiful, and this could be trouble for me. And so, uh, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah and his wife, I know that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So, say you, my, you are my sister, which we find out later in Genesis that technically she is his half-sister. Um, so, this is a half-truth here. Say you are my sister, why? That it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And so, just as he predicted, when they got into Egypt... Um, they saw that she was beautiful. Now, what he didn't count on, what he was probably thinking, was that, listen, if she's my sister, then anyone who wants to take her as a wife is going to have to negotiate with me, her brother. And hopefully, I can buy some time, and we can get out of this mess. But what he didn't count on was that the king, Pharaoh, doesn't have to ask for permission. He can take any wife he wants to take. And so that's what happens. He ends up, Pharaoh takes her, adds her to his harem, and then the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. God steps in and does what Abram wouldn't do. He protects Sarai. Um, so Pharaoh calls Abram and says, what is, the, what is this you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? You said, she's my sister. I took her for my wife. Now here, here's your wife. Take her and go. So he gave orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Um, in the meantime, he had, uh, Abram had increased in wealth because of Sarai. Well, what's, what's, this is not a picture of great faith and faithfulness. Um, Abram is not responding to all of God's promises with great faith, but with fear. Um, Abram does not trust what God had just promised him, that he would protect him. Those who uh, bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I I will curse. Um, Abram's desire was that, what did he say? 
Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Here's what's interesting. Abram wanted, was after, the very things that God had already promised him. God had just promised him, in essence, that it would go well with him, and that his life would be spared. His life would have to be spared, because through him, all the families of the earth were going to be blessed through his offspring. And yet Abram... Uh, decided to uh, go after those things. So it's not that Abram wanted wrong things necessarily. It was that he was going to get them without trusting God. Um, And friends, the shadow of Genesis 3 falls on this story. Where Adam did not trust uh, the word and promises of God and gave up his wife to a snake because of his fear and because of his lack of faith. So, so here's Abram, the one that the New Testament says and, and holds up as this great man of faith that we should uh, imitate his faith. And yet, this is a horrible example of faith. And yet God, in his mercy, spares Sarai, spares uh, Abram, and gives Abram another opportunity to trust him. I I thought it was fascinating how Abram responded after this whole debacle. Um, uh, Chapter 13, after all that mess that happened, it says this, Moses says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him. Now listen, we didn't read the travel down to Egypt, but this, uh, what I'm about to read, is the reverse of the path that Abram took to Egypt. He went into the Negev, to the desert. And now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. If you read this later, Abram has retraced his steps back to the place where he had built an altar and first called upon the name of the Lord. One commentator says, this is what repentance looks like. This is what repentant faith looks like. Abram has failed in his faith, and yet God has granted him uh, the faith to come back to him, to come back to the place where there is a sacrifice for his sin at the altar and come back to the place where he calls on the name of the Lord again. And friends, that should encourage us, because we're just like this. How many times have we not trusted God uh, because we feared what might happen? Time and time again, I have done this. I have let fear rule me instead of God's faithfulness and God's promise. And yet, graciously, God puts this story in here and shows that Abram yet has faith enough to go back to the God that he failed. 
and he repents. He offers sacrifice and calls upon the name of the Lord. So, I won't spend as much time on some of these other stories, but that, that's fear challenging and shaking his faith, and he fails, and yet he comes back, just as Peter came back to Jesus. Um, you know, Peter and Judas both betrayed Jesus and denied him. All the disciples denied him. Judas didn't come back in repentant faith. Peter did. The other apostles, uh, disciples did. So, the, his next test is um, the test, the shaking of prosperity, the offer of a good life. So in Genesis chapter 13, the story goes on. God had promised Abram, to your offspring I will give all this land, the land of Canaan. And so now he has an opportunity to put that promise to the test. Um, Lot's uh, flocks and Abram's flocks have both grown so much that they can't, the land can't handle all of them. And Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen are getting into conflict, and so they decide they need to kind of spread out. And so they look at the land, and Abram says to Lot, Abram, the one who is the older, the uncle, and has the first right of refusal, gives it to Lot and says, look at the land, and you take where you want to go. Lot looks at the land, and he sees that the land that goes down toward Sodom and Gomorrah is rich. In fact, it says that it looks like and reminds him of the Garden of Eden. And Lot, of course, seeing the opportunity for the good life and prosperity, takes it. It's going to be better for his flocks. It's going to be better for everyone. His wealth will increase there. And Abram says, it's yours. And then Abram takes the more dry, arid part of the land of Canaan. What does he do in that moment? He trusts God's promise more than he trusts the promise of fruitful land and the good life. He trusts God's promise more than prosperity. And he loves his family. He loves Lot and lets him have the better part of the land. This is an example of Abram showing great faith in God. And what does God do? God intensifies the promise. In verses 14 to 18, he says to to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, he says, God says this to Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if no one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also, uh, also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent into that part of the land. So here's Abraham. One day, one moment, he's not trusting God. And the next moment, he is trusting God. But what is God doing the whole time? Intensifying his promise, being consistent with his promise, reminding Abraham of his promise. The the point is, it's not up to Abram's faith 
It's up to God's faithfulness. Um, for the sake of time, I had hoped to get into chapter uh, 16, but we're going to have to not do that. Um, uh, but what I wanted to, let me just kind of summarize the, the rest of what's going on. In chapter 15, God intensifies his promise again, and Eric preached on chapter 15 a few weeks ago, and if you haven't listened to that sermon, you need to. Um, chapter 15 is one of the most incredible passages in all the Bible uh, that points to Jesus. And what God did in that chapter is he intensified um, his covenant, I mean, his promise to Abram again, his faithfulness to Abraham again, by cutting a covenant with him. Friends, no God in the ancient Near East would ever make a covenant with a human. That's unheard of. And God, Yahweh, the living God, made a covenant with Abraham the, Abram the human, not only just a covenant with him, but one that said, if I or you break any of this covenant, I will pay for it. It's on me. My blood will be shed. So he intensifies. God is continuing to show Abram more and more about what his promises look like and how rich and good they are. Well, then you know in chapter 16, Abram and Sarai turn around and try to make things work out for themselves again. The shadow of Genesis 3 falls over this chapter as well when it says that um, Sarai gave her handmaiden Hagar to her husband. Sounds like what happened at a tree in the garden. And he took her. The results of which were horrible for Hagar and her son. And yet in the midst of that, and I wish I had time to get into it for you, but in the midst of this horrible thing that happened uh, to Hagar and her son, God showed her grace. Um, and she began, began to know him as the God who hears the afflicted. Uh, he sent her back to Abram and Sarah, and many would say, why would he send her back to those who are abusing her? He sent her back with a new relationship that she had with Yahweh, the same God that Abram had. She had to have shared with Abram what uh, her encounter with God was like, that she saw the angel of the Lord. She saw the Lord himself. She had to. We know that because Abram named her son Ishmael, the God who hears. But the angel is the one who told Hagar to name him Ishmael. So this must mean that she told Abram that, and Abram believed it and acted by faith and gave grace and said, yes, his name is the God who hears. And so uh, there are commentators who believe that that's evidence that Abram's relationship to Hagar shifted from one of abuse to one of grace and favor and kindness. And even when he sent her away later in chapter 21, Sarai, she needed more work on the relationship, but Abram sent 
Hagar away with many possessions and much blessing. So even God's grace is evident there in their lack of faith. And then in chapter 17, God shows up again and intensifies um, his faithfulness to Abram and says, you count the stars, Abram. Um, First it was dust, now it's stars. I will give you this offspring. And the challenge to Abram at that point was God's slowness. Um, God's slowness. If you read the end of 16 and the beginning of 17, there's a 13-year gap between those two chapters. And there was 10 years before. It's been over 20 years, 23-plus years, since Abram came into the land and God promised him a son. Where is he? Where is he? And Abram asked him again, uh, where is he? And God uh, gives him an even more intensified promise. Uh, Count the stars. Your offspring through Sarai, not through, not through Hagar, not through Ishmael. Uh, your offspring will be innumerable. Friends, I need to wrap this up. And the point of what... Uh, the Lord encouraged me with from these stories this week is again, listen, your relationship with God is not dependent upon the intensity or consistency of your faith in Him. It's dependent on the intensity and consistency of His faithfulness to you. He gave Abram this strange sign of circumcision after this last intensification of his covenant. Why did he do that? He wanted to give him a reminder, a daily reminder, that God had marked him to be the father of nations. God had marked him to be the one through whom the offspring would come who would one day uh, crush the serpent's head. God had marked him as one who who was reminded daily that blood has to be shed in order for God's people's faithfulness, uh, faithlessness to be covered. Um, the Lord has done that for us. Every Sunday we come and we remember by this sign that Jesus has shed his blood, that Jesus is doing all that needs to be done uh, so that we are faithful to him and guarded by his power through faith, as Peter said. So Jesus told Peter, um, that his faith would fail, but he said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail fully and finally. And when you return, when you repent and come back, strengthen your brothers. I wonder, what is it that Jesus would pray to the Father that would um, strengthen the faith of Peter and, and rescue Peter? Well, he doesn't say. But we do know this, that what Jesus as our intercessor, as our high priest, offers to his Father on our behalf is his faithfulness. 
He didn't have up and down faith like Abram and Sarai and Peter. Jesus always trusted his father, always obeyed his father, leaned on him, rested in him, had confidence in him. And he did that in the place of us faithless people. And Jesus offers to his father on behalf of Peter and on behalf of you and me a sacrifice for our faithlessness. So, um, as the song we sang earlier says, before the throne my surety stands, my guarantee that God will be faithful to me stands before the Father. His name is Jesus. And friends, this is all I wanted to do this morning was to just encourage us that when you fail in your faith, when you feel like your faith is weak, and even when you're doing well, and you're being faithful. Don't look at your own faith. Look at Jesus and his faithfulness for you. Because Paul says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, by the word about Christ, by the message of what Christ is and has done for you. Um, I'll close with this. Someone recently wrote me and said, uh, I have a friend who would like to maybe trust in God, but, but he says, I can't because I, I don't have that faith. I, I, can't, I can't have faith in God, so I guess I can't come to him. I can't be one of his followers. And, and this person was asking me, well, what, did, what do I say? And part of what I encouraged them with was this. Faith doesn't start with you. <laughs> It starts with Jesus and what he's done. Faith comes by hearing the word about Jesus. And so I said, just encourage him, tell him to open the Gospels and start looking at Jesus and admiring him and being in awe of him and and seeing who he is and what he's done. And as he looks at him, if the faith is going to come, it's going to come then. Uh, look to the one uh, who has been faithful to you when you feel like you can't be faithful. And he will grow your faith as you look at him. And so, Father, we come even now to this table, to the uh, clear proof. We've heard the proof in your word, and now we see it in the sacrament that Jesus has been faithful for us in our faithlessness and in our faithfulness. Neither one of them count. Only the faithfulness of Jesus for us counts. And so we look to him. We look to him. And thank you for the way that you uh, continued to unfold and reveal the intensity and consistency of your faithfulness to Abram. You have, you have taken it all the way to this clear, uh, sharp, colorful white-hot vision of your faithfulness to us in Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross and that he's risen from the dead and is alive and is praying for us even now so that our faith may not fail. Um, As your people come to this table this morning, would you feed their faith, help them to see Jesus and rest in him 
and on him. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.